0: Welcome to The Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations.
1: Good evening. I'm Bob Shrum, the director of the Center for the Political Future at USC Dornsife. Uh, with me today is the center's co-director, Mike Murphy. And I do have to read a tweet he sent out earlier today because it captures him perfectly. He said, the Pergoshan thing reminds me, you know, Burgosian was in a plane crash, quote unquote, today. Reminds me of when I was working in Eastern Europe many years ago. And a vocal critic of the regime was found dead in his apartment. Official state news reports said, quote, he was very depressed and committed suicide." shooting himself in the head three times. Uh, On that night. let me welcome everyone to our first event for the academic year. We'll talk with our panel for about 40 minutes and then leave time for questions from the audience. And I'll make sure we get to as many of them as possible. We are fortunate to have five terrific fellows teaching study groups this semester. Today, you'll meet four of them and we'll have a discussion about what's happening in politics right now. And that's a lot. The fellow who can't join us for this program, but who will be spending time on campus this semester, is former White House chief of staff and former chairman of the Republican National Committee, Reince Priebus. Let me introduce the fellows who are here for today. Adesu demessi has led campaigns at the national, state, and local levels, including for U.S. Senator Cory Booker and California Governor Gavin Newsom. Arnon Miskin leads the Fox News election decision team which is responsible for analyzing election and polling results. And he has developed innovative methods to project election outcomes. And during the campaign season, he often appears on Fox News to tell us about the trends in the electorate. Maybe he'll do some of that today. Mike Schmoll is chairman of the Indiana Democratic Party, a member of the Democratic National Committee's executive committee. In 2020, he was the national campaign manager. For Pete Buttigieg's groundbreaking presidential campaign, building and leading a 600-person organization that saw Mayor Pete become the first LGBTQ presidential candidate awarded delegates in American history after the Iowa caucuses. He joins the center as its full 2023 Burnett Fellow. Betty Yee served as the California State Controller for two terms following two terms of service on the California Board of Equalization. She's also only the 10th woman in California history to be elected to statewide office. We'll focus on some questions here about the 2024 campaign. That kind of seems inevitable given the day. And as each of you answer initially, maybe you tell us just a little about the study groups you'll be leading this semester. And I'm sure Mike will jump in at any point when he wants. Here's my first question. Donald Trump is now the twice impeached, four times indicted, ex-president of the United States, but he seems to have a grip on primary voters. Two inquiries come out of this. One, why don't his legal problems hurt him? Indeed, they seem to help him with Republican voters. And the other inquiry, what impact will all his legal troubles have, if he's the nominee, on general election voters, 63% of whom in a recent poll said they definitely or probably wouldn't support Donald Trump. A Su, do you want to Want to start
2: asking me about Republican primary voters is, uh, uh, I obviously know a little bit about them, but, uh, on the primary side, I think opinions about Donald Trump are pretty calcified in America. And that's not just because of the last eight years since he came down the escalator. Uh, it's about the 30 years before that, the 10 years on the one of the top rated shows in America, uh, on NBC nightly, um, name recognition and brand building. You cannot, uh, you know, candidates could only, could only dream of in some ways. And so I don't think there's much about Donald Trump that folks can say that the people have been already kind of baked into their opinions of him. Um, And particularly among Republican voters, I think that, uh, you know, they live in a different information bubble where they may not be getting the same news as people in the democratic information bubble or people in the middle who aren't paying that much attention to politics at all. And so um Ultimately, I do think it hurts him with the general election voters. I I'm not sure if it helps or just doesn't hurt him among Republican voters. Maybe Arden or somebody who is deeper in the data can tell me tell us that, but Trump to me is like your quintessential high floor, low ceiling candidate. He has a lot of people who are with him and are going to stay with him, and he has a lot of people who have disqualified him and will never vote for him, and there's a pretty small middle of people for whom new information might change their minds, but but for the most point uh, for the most part doesn't
1: and what's your study group going to be about?
2: Oh, yeah. So I'm talking about, it's called Campaign from the Inside. I obviously, like a lot of people here, do campaign work uh, as a profession every day. You see some of these posters over <laughs> over my uh, uh, my shoulder here. But going to be bringing in a lot of predict- practitioners to talk about really like nuts and bolts, tactical things in campaigns. Polling, what it's like to be a candidate on a day-to-day basis. Media and how you actually make an ad. Running a campaign day-to-day. And give people more exposure to, um, what it's like for people like me every day, the, the sometimes unglamorous parts of, uh, of campaign management.
3: Or a decent mention. Do you want to pick it up? Trump. I'm, I might quibble with the notion that he has a grip on the party or you said a grip on the, on the, um, primary voters. I think he has a grip on a, a portion of those primary voters. And there's probably a third of the primary voters, maybe 40% that are absolutely committed to this guy. For, and, and they, that is the group that drove him to, to victory in 2016. And they see him as their, um, uh, their atomic bomb or their, that they're, he, they're, he is the person who's going to blow up the system that they perceive for whatever reason as having not given them what they believe that they would do or were or that, and, and, and I think a lot of it frankly is tied up into, Many people talk about the sort of uh, whites without college degrees. I think it's less about, um, education and more about location. Um, and I think that a huge chunk of the, the Trump base is a rural base. These are the people who are listening to, uh, Richmond, north of Richmond. Um, one of the lines in that, um, uh, song is, um, you're telling, you, you tell us that, uh, how to live our lives. You can try to control our life and we don't want to be controlled. And I think there's an element of that. And, and Trump somehow has captured that. Um, but that's a third of the base. Then there's another, um, 40% of Republicans that probably intellectually realize he's responsible for losing in 2018, 2020 and 2022 and not doing as well in 2022 as we should have. Um, and so, but they also think, yeah, but he won in 2016 and we were all shocked. So he has some kind of magic, maybe. So they're kind of like him. And then there's a small chunk of the Republican Party that um, their uh, titular head, I guess, is Mitt Romney. I think their um, closeted uh, biggest supporter is probably Mitch McConnell that is going to do everything to prevent Donald Trump from being the nominee. I don't know that. Mitch McConnell really will do that, but I suspect. And the reason Trump has not been hurt is because that third of the Republican primary voters, they think, yeah, but of course you're going to indict him because he wants to blow up your system. And and they totally see this thing. And then I think for the other 40 or whatever, that that chunk that doesn't totally, why he's getting to 51, 53% of the Republican primary vote in in most polling, I think it's that these indictments have taken all the oxygen out of the room and all we have. To show for it is Donald Trump. And so he's still there and none of these other guys seem to be an alternative. So I guess I'll be with Trump and hope for the best. We're going to talk a lot about that in my study group because it's going to be about campaigning in an era, a highly polarized era. Um, and we're going to be hearing from both Democrats and Republicans, campaign organizers, as well as understanding the, the sort of motivations behind this, um, polarization and what we can do to, if we want to address it.
0: Mike, you want to weigh in here and, and move this along? Maybe. Absolutely. I'd say a couple of things quickly. I agree with everything I've heard. It's so polarized and tribal now that everything's seen as corrupt by partisans on both sides. I mean, we've had germs of that for a long while. I used to work in Florida a lot for the Bush family. And I remember after the Chads and, and you know, oh, you guys rigged the election in, in Florida. And, you know, it, it's kind of been under the surface because Al Gore didn't stand up and say, yeah, it was, I was ripped off. It's all fixed. Trump's going to let that tiger out of the cage. So now, what investigation is legitimate? They're all rigged. And how come Biden's son, the international drug dealer, is running free? Well, for, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's part of the stupidization of politics, and it's really bad for our institutions. But I would say I remain the last, well, I don't know. I think there are a few more of us that is not sure Trump's going to win the nomination. I'm not sure it is a lot. So I would just say, you know, the national polls of primary voters, show Trump if the election were held tomorrow would be in a commanding position. But it's not a national election. The series of state contests and the two states that are the most competitive now is where there are alternatives. That's where the other candidates are spending millions, the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary. So I'll, I kind of want to wait to let that part of the process happen before we declare inevitability. That says Trump has all the advantages. I did see a fascinating poll in New Hampshire the other day. One of the candidate super PACs did it, a non-Trump super PAC. And it asked a hypothetical two-way ballot. You're like, well, there are 42 people running. Why the hell do you care about a two-way ballot? Good point. But it was interesting. It was a six-point race. Trump was six points. It was like 47 over 41, give or take a point. And I thought that was an interesting tell back to what Arnon was talking about, about kind of the Trump plurality chunk and the other not-so-sure chunk. The problem with the not-so-sure chunk is they don't have a champion yet. Nobody's really famous enough. And tonight, I think Trump made a terrible mistake not showing up because he gives somebody else an opportunity to be a star. Either a DeSantis comeback. By the way, in that two-way race, it was the DeSantis' super PAC that did the poll, Chris Wilson. But they didn't do it. It was Tim Scott, who has the best-fave unfavorable in both states, Iowa and New Hampshire. Who would close the thing to six? Now he's got to grow a spine and actually alpha up and not be running for Ed McMahon, which is kind of what he's doing now. But I think there are more loose bolts out there. And so I'm, I think, you know, right now Hillary was beating Obama in the national polling. There's a long history of getting ahead of the process because, you know, our pundit world needs to, every day has to be the sinking of the Titanic, the biggest day ever. And sometimes, like I'm in New Hampshire, I've been here a month, nobody's talking about the campaign. Or the candidates. There are a couple of crazy Robert Kennedy Jr. yard signs around. That's all I see from anti vax wackos. And that is it. So, Mike, I say bet on Trump, but don't bet a lot and be patient. Maybe surprised.
1: Let me throw this to Betty and then to Mike Schmoll. Betty, do you think that all these legal troubles create really big problems in the general election if Donald Trump's the nominee?
4: I think he will have issues in the general election. And, you know, I think what people are reacting to now, it's really kind of at the most basic fundamental level, and that is, you know, he is somebody who has no problems giving voice to the fact that the system is against him. And I think when you look at what's happening with people throughout this country, and we see it here in California, where, um, you know, the economy is not working for them, uh, you know, the livelihoods have been lost, you know, from... You know, the pandemic and, and the culture wars, which, you know, Donald Trump was, you know, kind of the, uh, what took the mantle of, you know, this is what people are reacting to. You know, he's kind of their, their hero at this point. But, um, I do think they relate to him still at that most basic level. But as we get closer to the general election, I think uh, we're going to see more discernment among the voters.
0: Mike, what's your take? You've run an actual state party. You've seen the mechanics up close on one of these crazy things.
5: It's interesting. I I sort of think that it it remains to be seen. I agree with a lot of what Betty said. I think that next year, Trump's, he's not only going to have the primary calendar, he's also going to have a court calendar, right? And all these different jurisdictions, (laughs) court calendars, or calendars, exactly. And so he's going to have to tailor his campaign to, you know, does he have to have meetings with his lawyers? Does he have to fly to this place? Does he have to appear Are they making special accommodations for him? And as we've seen over the last, good Lord, you know, week or so, is he going to turn himself in? Will they have a mugshot? All this like drama that comes with all of that will just overtake any talk of policy or the horse race or debates or campaign moments. Now, I think what this could do in the general election is create an opportunity for President Biden, because let's not forget, President Biden, you know, didn't campaign traditionally four years ago because it was covid He was pretty much at home doing his thing. And so if the president's doing a Rose Garden strategy and Trump's doing a courtroom strategy, I think the rich American would want to be with the president.
0: It's going to be a great year for Court TV. I guarantee you that.
5: Yeah, very much so.
1: Mike, you just mentioned Biden. So let's do the other side of the coin. After an initial burst of inflation, which has now come down sharply, Biden has a pretty enviable economic record. Inflation is down, very low unemployment. Very high job creation. Yet his approval number on the economy is at or below 40%. How do you explain this? And is it likely to change by electricity?
5: I mean, Mike, you could go first, then maybe we'll go to Arnold. It. No, it's something that I think about a lot, Bob. And also, you know, my study group will kick things off with trying to rebuild a party, uh, Democratic party in a red state. You know, it's no easy task. But the Midwest is so important politically, as we all know, um, for the presidency and just for our politics in general, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, et cetera. And so we'll look at kind of flyover country and how it's perceived and and how people campaign there. I think it's a big disconnect. I think that the president has a really good economic record. I think that the challenges that I see every day when I travel around my state, it's almost like you say the D word, Democrat word. And it's just like, there's horns coming out of your head, right? And they're like, what the heck? Like, they don't want to talk to you. They don't want to engage with you. It's it's almost like a barrier just immediately comes down and you can't have that dialogue with, with somebody who is, who is friendly with you just moments ago. And so it's a huge disconnect. And I think that another thing I think we'll talk about in the study group, but I know folks folks here have thoughts is, you know, I think the Democratic Party can always improve how it's messaging and how it's communicating with people. Because things are getting better. It's not easy, but we need to do a better job of extending that to people and showing them and telling them. And I think that the president's campaign is starting to do that. You're seeing more and more advertising and and things being pushed out.
3: Ernan, why didn't the president get more credit? That is a really good question. I don't know if I have, I don't think I have the answer, but I have a few hypotheses. The first and most obvious one is if you do a focus group of voters, and I don't really care what kind of voters you're picking. You can pick the most rabid anti-Biden voters, or you can pick the most liberal, progressive Democratic voters. And you say to them, what's the first word that comes to your mind when I say Joe Biden? Everyone will say old. And I think that that is an overarching um, definition of him right now. Um, And I think that that is, to me, when I look at the numbers, if you look at the facts of the case, a member of my family once once said, about Joe Biden that, um, if you look at the facts of the case in terms of inflation, in terms of how he's handling Ukraine, in terms of, of what he's done on chips or the first action on, uh, legislation on climate change, um, you have to agree that this is my family member, not me, that Joe Biden is the best prime minister the United States has had in, um, at least since George H.W. Bush and maybe since Lyndon Johnson, depending on your view of each, um, but in order to be reelected president, I think he needs to do something more than just be a high-quality prime minister or head of government. Um, and I think that's where they have they are, are lacking. And they have not figured out a narrative which, as far as I know, should, needs to start with what we all agree on Joe Biden. He's old. And why that somehow is why we're getting what we're getting. Um, and I think if you look back at a, a, a recent, pre, not recent, um, looking at some of the youthful faces on this, in this <laughs> group here, uh, history. That's what, I mean, Ronald Reagan at this stage was iffy in terms of reelection. And somehow they figured out a, a, or they are, or they always had a message which linked up to the fact that he was an old guy. He'd been an actor and, um, he was probably not that smart. And somehow they tied that to why things are so successful, um, in America and why they, and they won 49 states. Um, so I, I think that, that it's not, that for the Biden people, it's not hopeless, but there's, there's a real challenge and they have not figured out their narrative and they've not figured out how to address the age issue.
4: Well, let me just say, um, age equals experience. So, uh, what he was able to get accomplished, uh, this administration in less than two years is, uh, going to go down the history books. Um, you know, my take on this is that, um, you know, the results of all of those accomplishments, uh, has still yet to be felt at the local community level throughout this country. And I know, um, you know, this is just kind of the inner workings of government and how darn slow it can be in terms of delivering the dollars to communities and particularly communities that have been, you know, waiting for a long time to be, to get some attention. So, um, and this actually, coincidentally, is the focus of my, um, study group. And that is, uh, implementation delivery and, and how good governance really has to rule the day because, um, We've got to get the experts who know how to, you know, get the dollars out the door and to, you know, really get to those communities that have uh, have the most needs. So I, I hope that people will equate and I, and and look whether it's the Inflation Reduction Act or uh, what he's done with chips, all of this. I mean, this administration has set the table beautifully for an economic transformation, and this is uh, what I hope uh, people can start to realize. Uh, we're already starting to see uh some of the benefits, particularly you know prescription drug prices for seniors, but. And all these other areas where, um, dollars going to be delivered to improve infrastructure, to deal with the climate crisis, you know, all of this communities will start to feel that. And I, and I do hope it's going to be soon because, um, I think the promises of what it's going to be in terms of good quality union jobs and just an economic future that's going to be much brighter for many Americans is, you know, what's in store.
0: Historically, presidential elections start as a referendum on the incumbent. Now they don't always wind up there. And the great question here, to me, is if Trump is the nominee, is he so bad he can warp kind of the the normal and drag Biden over the finish line? What would worry me if I were in the Biden world is exactly he is labeled as the old guy. And he's the old guy who likes to talk about all the stuff he's done for you, which is a backward-looking message. So it's grandpa talking about how they won the war. Not a good formula. Finally, if you ask people right now, again, Biden has a whole re-election campaign to wage, and, and we'll see Trump may be on an appeal campaign, but if you ask people to choose in the data, who's better to run the economy? Horrible Don Tr- Donald Trump will you all hate, or Joe Biden is having trouble with the fine print on the economic engine. Trump beats him by double digits. Even Trump. I think if the election were held tomorrow, a box of horseshoes could beat Biden in the shape he's in. The question is, is Trump going to be worse than a box of horseshoes? And since the box of horseshoes can't get indicted and can't talk, there's a fighting chance of that, particularly among suburban voters and other key places that will drive the Electoral College. But if I were the Biden people, and maybe I'm wrong, this is the mindset, but as an old campaign hack looking at it from the outside, I would be careful about high-fiving each other about how much it looks like Trump's going to win the nomination. That's the fun part of being in the Biden campaign. The not fun thing is fixing Biden, and for that matter, Kamala Harris. And they have work to do. Because when a president is perceived as being lousy in the economy, nothing good can happen. And again, I know that the stats. He has a story. But perception is reality. And if I were him, I'd be careful about the bragging. I've seen the new ad. Everything's great. Everything's better. Careful when you tickle the bear's whiskers that way. When they're not sure everything's great yet and they're seeing payments go up, they don't know inflation is on the downslide, Uh, you're going to get bit.
1: So, that's a perfect statement for you to respond to.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with a lot of it, honestly. I think a couple of things, uh, Arnon talked about Reagan. I think Obama in 2011 was in about the same position favorability, job approval wise that, um, that Biden is in now. Uh, honestly, a very similar, it's like Groundhog Day for a situation. Uh, uh, Economic collapse of 08 versus COVID uh, fueled inflation. Pretty productive first couple of years of unified democratic government versus, uh, uh, you know, what the perception of that was. And ultimately Obama won 12 years ago with, uh, what was it? 332 electoral votes. So I think Mike is a hundred percent right that there's a campaign to run here. And right now it, this is all about Joe Biden, but eventually it's going to be Joe Biden versus somebody and. Joe Biden himself, the president always says this, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. Right now there is no alternative. It's Trump sort of floating around. People think who that's going. That's who it's going to be, but it will be somebody at some point that voters are going to have to make a choice about, and that person may be worse, in fact, than a box of horseshoes. The only other thing I would say is one of the main things I think the president has going for him is that whenever his job approval ratings may be right now, his personal favorability ratings are always better. People like the guy. And generally don't believe what, uh, you know, the, the right wing ecosphere is talking about his, him being a socialist, left wing, lunatic, communist. Like they think he's kind of a regular, moderate, average Joe, which is from years of being vice president and a campaign that came before us in, in 2020. And honestly, how he's approached his presidency over the course of the last two and a half years. And so I think. The nice part about that is there's a gap between job approval and personal favorability, which means there's room to grow. And I think he has particular personal favorability amongst those exact swing voters that Mike was just talking about, the sort of suburban, largely white, but not exclusively white sort of people who aren't paying that close attention to politics and who might be filling it in their pocketbook right now, but believe that he is a good person. And that a lot at least allows us the aperture on the, on the Democratic side to make an argument to them in a way to the answer that I gave to the first question that Trump may not have. There are some people who just will not hear him because they have shut him out after eight years of dealing with his nonsense. Biden, whatever they may think of the economy or, or his performance, I don't think has gotten there with a lot of these voters. And that's an advantage that that the Democrat has.
1: I'd like to get to two other questions, at least before we turn to the audience. Uh, the first about social issues. They seem to be playing a big role in the Republican primary contest. Uh, and we just had another referendum in Ohio uh, that will make it possible for voters there to codify abortion rights in the state constitution. Abortion rights were a powerful motivator for Democrats in 2022. Do you expect to see this issue play that similar kind of role in 2024 in the general election? Betty, we'll start with you.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think these issues continue to be top of line for many. And um, this is where we've been saying our vice president really, um, traveling the country and talking about a lot of these issues that this administration has really, um, uplifted, particularly reproductive rights, um, uh, you know, gun violence prevention, uh, climate change. Um, I mean, you know, all these issues that really are, uh, going to be, um, you know, kind of, well, um, for lack of a better word, weaponized by the other side. Um, but this started in the midterm elections and particularly here in California and on the West coast. Um, you know, we had a, measured to enshrine uh, reproductive rights and contraceptives in our constitution. And that organizing around that work has not stopped. And in fact, I think we're going to see probably a lot of uh, young voters continue to be energized by attention paid to these issues.
5: Mike Schwal? I mean, I agree. And I think here in Indiana, some things that we've seen recently, obviously, we're a, a reddish state, hopefully turning the other direction. But there's been book bans, and local school boards, library boards, um, and, and what I've seen just very recently is when some of that stuff happens, there's a huge backlash locally to do something about it, to change it. And so I think that Democrats are on the right side of a lot of these issues. I think that Republicans, if it's a, if it's a primary and it's a red area and it's a conservative area, they really use it as a shiny object or a cudgel to, to just get people to, to pay attention. Um, and that's really dangerous because it, um, it just injects so much extra stuff into our political discourse when we want to be talking about people's daily lives and, and kind of bread and butter issues. Um, the other thing I'll say on the last point is when I go to all the rubber chicken dinners around Indiana, I always say I'd rather have old than crazy. And people seem to like that. So I will repeat that everywhere I go. Yeah, but you can only say that if Trump's the nominee. Well, I don't know. We'll see what some of these folks say tonight. <laughs>
0: Mike Murphy. the thing about abortion is we're not used to the supreme court taking perceived rights away that's a u-turn from what most americans think the supreme court has been doing some like it you know a lot don't there are more pro-choice voters than pro-life voters in the electorate now in the republican primary though in the hooks and ladders there are a lot of social conservatives so people running in a primary have a short-term Incentive to go of a bidding war there, but in the general election, it becomes a good weapon for the Democrats to weaponize. Now, if we had an open multi candidate Democratic primary now, you'd see them all lined up at UAW headquarters saying, 40 bucks an hour, three day work week, you got it. You know, so the Dems are very capable of the same game, but we're, we're a little in a bad position politically because we are the dog that caught the car when the supreme court actually did something which is our political system had settled into kind of a happy phony war about this stuff and now it's back up now biden doesn't doesn't fix his numbers on the economy i don't think it saves him but it's sure a great channel changer to help him keep the focus over on donald trump who by the way is the Secret leader of the pro-choice wing of the party, and will be incredibly uncomfortable with all this stuff if he's the nominee. But yeah, it is fuel the Democrats need, and we've seen it in a lot of elections now. The extent of the referendum on abortion rights in a swing state is very bad for the Republicans.
1: Arnon, did you see reproductive rights coming as a big deciding
3: issue in twenty twenty two? We felt it was going to be uh, the the polling throughout twenty two suggested this was going to be a big issue. The reality is. It helped in a lot of cases. I think it's one of the key things that the Democrats used very effectively to finally motivate, you know, historically, the only abortion folks who voted on abortion were the pro-life side. The pro-choice side thought we have Roe, it's it's safe. I can vote in the economy or that sort of thing. In 2022, we saw that being working effectively for the Democrats, but not everywhere. In Ohio, the governor signed a fairly Restrictive abortion ban, an abortion ban that resulted in national coverage over that nine year old rape victim who was forced to go to Indiana, I believe, to, um, to get, uh, the procedure, a medically required procedure. And so it doesn't always work. And, it, you know, several, the Republicans have been very effective in some cases of eliding the issue. The other thing I'd say about abortion, which continues to puzzle me is the Democrats are running an, an abortion referendum. Uh, I think it's the Democrats or the pro, the pro choice side is running is, is, has petitioned to have an abortion referendum in November. Guess what? It's in November of 23, not November of 24. You know, they could have taken a page from Karl Rove, who I would argue won the Bush campaign in 2004, basically. Because he had a referendum on the ballot in Ohio that said um, to outlaw marriage equality and uh, got a lot of evangelical voters who otherwise probably were lukewarm on Bush to come out. And while they were there, they were voting Republican. Arden, I have to tell you, having been on the other side of that battle, I totally agree with that. I think that's exactly right. And why they haven't done this, why the Democrats aren't doing the same, uh, or, you know, sort of, if you will, wasting that ammunition in 23 that might have been very effective in 24 is a, shall we say, boggles the mind. Adisa would do you think it's going to be a big issue? And would you add on top
1: of it the perceived threat to democracy if uh, Trump's the nominee? You know, Biden got ridiculed going into the midterms because he kept talking about the danger to democracy. Well, it turned out when you looked at the polling afterwards, it was actually one of the big motivators for people as they decided who to vote for.
2: So, yes, on, on both. On abortion, I completely agree. I think it. I was surprised, honestly, about the staying power of the issue. Maybe that's my own biases and blinders. I thought in the wake of uh, both the leak and ultimately the Dobbs decision that it would be sort of a activation energy for Democrats, and it was, but it sustained not just through November, but we are now in August of the next year, and it is still probably the second top polling issue among uh, among Democrats behind the economy. With that said, Mike Murphy said this and I completely agree. The economy is still the number one issue for Americans of every stripe. It is sort of the threshold issue that people are measuring their political leaders by. And I think we have to remember that even as we can, I think correctly use abortion rights and reproductive rights as a political tool to both motivate and, and I think to persuade, which is one of the, one of the rare things about the abortion issue is that it is both a motivator and a persuasion tool for a broad swath of of uh, Americans, not just Democrats, but independents and even a significant number of pro-choice Republicans or at least abortion kind of agnostic Republicans. Talk about sort of social issues writ, writ large. I saw last year in a lot of the work I did on the midterm races, the power of sort of the contrast of Republican focus on these book bans and, you know, crazy attacks on wokeism, whatever the hell that means as a way for Democrats to talk about the economy, as a contrast to say they are focused on, Mike Schmoll kind of referred to this, they are focused on these things that are both bad and take their eye off the ball of kitchen table issues that matter to you, the price of insulin, price of prescription drugs, the cost of groceries, what have you. And the more that the Ron DeSantis of the world and the Carrie Lakes or whoever her, her Successor will be in whatever state it is this year running for, but we'll talk about these crazy right wing issues that actually appeal to the Republican base and no one else. The more that it opens up our ability to at least talk about the fact that Democrats are trying on the economy, even as you may not feel it in your day to day life yet. Will they maybe by next November? But trying actually matters, I think a lot to voters out there and the belief that, that, uh, you know, your elected officials or your candidates are, are making the best effort they can to change your life in a way for the better.
1: Okay, tonight's, as we already referred to it, is the Republican debate uh, in Milwaukee. The other big story is Donald Trump being booked in Atlanta, and his mugshot will go all around the world. How much does it matter, and this is for each of you, that Trump isn't showing up for tonight's debate? I know we've already heard somebody say it was a mistake, but I'd like to hear from each of you about whether or not he should be showing up tonight And should he be showing up for future debates? He should announce
2: he's not going to go to any of the debates. Anyone can start. I'm happy to take this one. The Tucker Carlson interview that he's doing, which since I've been on this call, there are clips that have come out. I haven't actually watched them yet, so I don't know. I think is going to do numbers, like and maybe numbers akin to what the debate is going to do in a much more comfortable environment for him, etc. I am not sure it's going to hurt him. Except in the way that Murphy talked about, which I don't disagree, if somebody has a star-making turn on that debate stage tonight, the threat of a one-on-one for Trump is really the only thing I think that stands between him and and the nomination at this point. I just don't think any of these guys has any talent, if I'm just going to be honest with you. I just don't think they got what it takes to take on the big bad wolf that is Donald Trump, who say what you will about him, and I had my own opinions about him eight years ago on this day that I think were proven wrong. He has talent in terms of political performance, and what he's going to do with Tucker today is probably going to do better on social, on media coverage, etc., than whatever's going to happen on Fox News tonight. Sorry, Arna. So I'm not sure it's a mistake, is my point, and I think it also calls into question what's going to happen next November with the presidentially you know, organized debates. I think Ronald McDaniel's already talked about how that whole tradition is in danger. Um, but debates aren't what they used to be. They're not as important. They're not as, you know, they're not as well watched. They're not as, uh, in my mind, uh, they don't change the narrative as much as they once did, as much as maybe a one-on-one interview will.
3: Well, let's go around the horn on this. Arnon, you, your network was just mentioned. I think we'll get good numbers. No, but, uh, no, ser- seriously, um, I kind of agree with the, I agree with you that, that, um, said that, that, he is a, a political performer, the likes of which we have not seen in many, many years. And I also, but I disagree with Mike on one level, which is I don't, I think this was the right decision for Trump not to go, but, and so I think that, that he didn't want to be there and get beaten up or whatever, or whatever it is. Why should he deliver numbers? And he would be delivering numbers if he were on stage tonight. On the other hand, I think it's a gift to the other candidates because Someone is going to do better than the others are going to do. And some one or two, maybe three people will emerge as people we should keep an eye on for. Um, I think DeSantis, you know, is, he is at the most risk, but maybe he has a big comeback. Similarly, Vivek, I think could wind up being a flash in the pan or turn out to be okay. Um, but it's someone's going to do really well. And I think there is a feeling in the Republican party, much as there was a feeling in the Democratic party four years ago that whatever it is, we just got to unite. Let's find someone. And so, and the reason Biden got the nomination was he's fine. And that's why everyone coalesced. Your guy, Mike, um, endorsed him. Various other people endorsed him because there was no oxygen left. Biden will be fine. He's our guy. I think there's going to be something similar on the Republican side um, amongst voters who don't like Trump and amongst donors who don't like Trump. Or we think Trump is a loser that they will unite around someone. And I think that we'll find who two or three of those, that someone might be tonight.
1: Okay. Let's go quickly around the horn to Mike Schmoll,
5: Betty Ye, and then give Mike Murphy the last word on this. Trump will be there in person, but I think he will definitely be there from start to finish. And it will be fascinating to see how often the moderators and the. Um, the candidates invoke his name. I think that that's something that we should really look at. I do agree with Arnon on, on one thing, which is who on that stage is going to be their own person. That I think is going to be fascinating um, because Trump has such a hold on so much of the GOP electorate. Who is going to stand on their own two feet and say, this is who I am. This is where I came from. This is where I want to take the Republican Party and the country. Is anybody capable of doing that? Because I think right now what I see on the ground and as I travel around that the GOP is really kind of in this twisted kind of tug of war for are they going to go all MAGA and just be Trump again or are they looking for something else? And it'll be really interesting to see who tries to balance both or go on their own, kind of go on their own accord. I think that'll be fascinating tonight. Daddy
4: Look, I don't think Trump needs to be at the debate tonight. I mean he's someone who's already who's always kind of running his own lane, so I don't think it hurts him at all. I actually think the candidates tonight will be cautious, will remain cautious. I I don't expect any breakthrough tonight. I think this is all too fresh uh to really uh have any candidate understand, you know, just what the general public response will be. Um, you know, the critics who have been critics of Trump will be interesting to see if they take it a little bit further that um I actually think we're going to um, see, uh, and, and they will be uh, probably not unified in terms of, you know, the areas of focus, you know, either. So um, I I think it's too early tonight for uh, seeing any kind of a breakthrough. Mike Murphy, last word.
0: You know, I think there were two scenarios. One is Trump shows up, he cows them all. Most of them don't have the guts to say anything. He argues with Christie all night, which might win Christie the Democratic primary. But the Republican primary is tribal, and it would have been good for Trump. Now Trump, who runs on strength, is the coward who's not there. Superman is afraid to fly. Tristy's going to be, you know, waving the rubber chicken. And somebody else, it could be Vivek, which is a step backwards, or it could be a Tim Scott or a Nikki Haley or a DeSantis 2.0, somebody's going to have, by acclamation a good night. I don't think the numbers count because we're in the Internet era. Everybody sees everything big over time. So Trump will get a lot off the Tucker thing, and somebody, maybe two somebody's is going to get a lot off this. I think the formula for this nomination race is incredibly simple. Donald Trump is Superman. If he loses Iowa and New Hampshire, he's not going to be the nominee. If he loses Iowa and wins New Hampshire, he'll run the table and be the nominee. So the the question is going to be for that audience. And I'll never forget, in 2000, when John McCain and I were driving around in a minivan, We showed up to the first debate in New Hampshire. Bush was 30 points in front of us. He no-showed. And that was the beginning of New Hampshire getting interested in John McCain.
3: We hear about violence all the time in the news, yet we rarely hear stories about peace. There are so many people who are working hard to promote solutions to violence, racism, toxic polarization, and authoritarianism often at great personal risk. We never hear about these stories, but at what cost? On Making Peace Visible, we speak with journalists, storytellers, and peace builders who are on the front lines of both peace and conflict. You can find Making Peace Visible wherever you
2: listen to podcasts. Okay, let's turn to to some
1: audience questions. Ken Broad was a big friend of the center. Has what I think is a really interesting question. He says, uh, really religious voters want respect and the ability to live on their paychecks. How does the Democratic party solve the hillbilly elegy problem? I've heard nothing about that from Democrats so far. Mike, you, you're, you're trying to grapple with that, I assume.
5: Yeah, very much so. That's a great question. Um, and my first session actually, uh, at USC will be talking about that. You know, people who are looking at this right now are Sherry Bustos, who's the former DCCC uh, chief uh, congresswoman from Illinois, um, former congresswoman. Um, so she's looked at this issue a lot. There's also another group with the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative that's seeking to um, increase dialogue and how Democrats talk with folks in rural America. I, I think a few things. I think you have to show up. Uh, when I became chair, we, we did 160 events in about 70 counties in Indiana just to go physically to places to meet with people face to face. Um, but also not talk, not just, not just say, Hey, here's why we're great. Here's what Biden's doing. Here's what we're doing. It's awesome, but listening to people, um, doing a lot more listening than talking. And I think that that was very fruitful, but, but it's a huge challenge. I think a lot of it has to do with media. Um, that some of these rural areas that are less populated, it's conservative radio, it's Fox News, it's stuff on people's phones, and that's all they're getting all day long. And so, you know, the loss of local journalism has been a huge uh, detriment to to those communities. But I think it's authenticity of candidates. I think it's showing up. Um, I think it's message discipline. Uh, I think it's the right kind of candidates that we recruit and that we run. Um, and I think it's talking with people face to face, as simple as that sounds. Does uh, someone else want to weigh in on this? I'll just throw out a
0: statistic because Ken's got a great question here. Yeah. There are about 3,200 counties in America and Joe Biden got 80% of his vote over 500 out of 550. Those 550 Biden counties also create 70% of the GDP. The other counties are doing great on despair and they hit their military recruitment targets, but culturally they feel left out. Of the ride that the, they think either Biden's writing blank welfare checks or Biden billionaires are buying solar powered Zeppelins and all never lose no matter what. And it's that cultural fork. And sometimes the, the screaming identity message of the Democratic party that makes these people who are mostly working class. It's a culture divide, not an economic divide, feel incredibly left behind. That leads to anger, which leads to populism. And here we are. I had hope for J.D. Vance, and he called me about running for Senate as an anti-Trumper, and then people change, I guess. And now he's a clown. People want to win. Yeah, at any cost. Would he have won if you were running as an anti-Trumper? No, and I told him that. I said, no wait. But meanwhile, he, he flipped. I sent him a copy of Faust. I'll go to the next question,
1: and maybe, Adiso, you could start with this. How much, if any, will Cornell West, Joe Manchin, Robert Kennedy, potential third-party candidates, Help or hurt Joe Biden's
2: prospects. I think there's a difference between some of those people. Robert Kennedy, I think is a, uh, is a nuisance, <laughs> but I don't think is relevant in the long run. Uh, Joe Biden's going to be the Democratic nominee for president. Third party candidates on the other, on the other hand, I think are relevant. Um, we saw it in 2016. I'm not sure if Jill Stein hadn't run for president or been on some ballots, whether Hillary Clinton would be president right now, but there's a very good case to be made. And you know, it's not rocket science. It's just math uh we saw how close the margins were both in 16 and 20 doesn't take that big of a, of a slice of the electorate in some of these states. We're talking 10, 15, 20, thousand votes um, that can flip dozens of electoral college votes in the Wisconsin's and Arizona's and Georgia's of the world. So I do think it's relevant. I think, um, you know, there is a, there is a empirical question that I don't think has, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is that it's going to hurt Biden. Um, and I think it makes sense. That's not, it's conventionalism for a reason. But I do think there is a, there are a lot of double haters, as one of my friends calls them, people who don't like Biden and don't like Trump. Um, and a lot of, and in 2020, those voters went disproportionately for Trump, actually, um, than, uh, than Biden. And so there is a, there, I would want to do more research about whether some of those candidates would actually take more votes from the sort of suburban, Biden twenty twenty voter, or actually maybe the more exurban white, maybe non college Trump voter, and you think Mansion, for example, could actually have an appeal to that latter group? Cornell West, obviously black progressive, probably is going to have more of an impact with Democratic voters and Biden, potentially Biden voters. So, but the answer to the question is definitely yes. Anybody who tells you differently is lying because it is the margins are so close.
1: Well, Arnon, you're the numbers guy, and uh I think back to nineteen forty eight. When everybody wrote Truman off, he had a challenge inside his own party from both the right and the left, and people just assumed that Tom Dewey was going to be the next president of the United States.
3: Can Biden overcome if there's a significant third party movement? It depends on who the who the Republican is. If the Republican is Donald Trump, I think there will be a lot of attention paid to the strategic element of voting for no labels or or whatever and the, and he could overcome that um you know the irony is that the reason truman did so well and the pollsters um uh, misjudged it was because they didn't understand what was going on in rural america which is was, was the heart of truman's uh, strength um as opposed to urban america which was more republican in those days um and and so i but to on the specifics i think no, no the way no labels is is structured right now Um, if, or the, that's the most viable one of the third parties. It, I don't see how it, you can't make the case that it's, it will wind up hurting, helping the Republicans and, and hurting the Democrats. Because if anything, you know, one of the weakest parts of Biden's support is the progressive part of the Republican, Democratic party that sort of think, well, you didn't get us big build back better. You got us this inflation reduction act or whatever. You didn't get us all you promised. We don't have Medicare for all. And we won't. No, I mean, the votes,
1: the votes aren't there. Betty, Mike, or Mike, you want to weigh in on
4: this? Nope. Yeah,
0: I think we, we all think it's a thing.
1: Yeah. So we have another, I think, really interesting question. How big a liability is the anti-incarceration trend in liberal cities and open drug use in places like San Francisco? The loss of law and order,
0: this person says, feels like a huge potential catalyst for a swing to the right. Well, we have a little history on that, because the last time the Democrats tangled with crime, it wasn't so good for them. There are bigger things than a presidential election, but you're, you're, those of us who live in the L.A. media market are seeing it right now, and uh, I see a little polling about that kind of stuff, and it is spiking. Crime is a vulnerability for Democrats, because then again, perception, reality, you can defend from the Democratic point of view the reality, but the perception in these cities are that they're massively permissive on crime. And you have progressive, you know, district attorneys in the headlines like Gascon in LA who are lightning rods for this thing makes it very easy for people to put a formulation together that, you know, something has gone very wrong. Somebody else want to weigh in on that?
4: Yeah. I think it's a, uh, I mean, this is an issue, not just for this cycle, but just criminal justice reform, public safety has been weaponized for quite a while couple cycles for by the republicans and you know at the end of the day it's it's really gets down to economic issues again you know the investments we make in our communities and it's not to say that and and frankly it's a false choice um you can still have criminal justice reform and deliver public safety so it's uh an either or it's a both and we want to hold our law enforcement accountable we want to have good response times by law enforcement if we're victims of crime that's it has um gotten away from just the focus that we need to continue to have, and that is, you know, if we carry out the agenda of President Biden, um, it's the economic investments that we make in communities that uplift communities that uh, really are the antidote to, you know, what we're seeing relative to, to crime.
5: I would just add, Bob, that one of the wrinkles that we see with gun violence in, in particularly red states, but where there's big blue cities, is that the legislatures have really tied the hands of local, local leaders and local law enforcement. So- Indianapolis, where I, where, um, you know, near where I live is a prime example. You also see what Bill Lee, the governor of Tennessee is trying to do after their shooting, right? His caucus and the Republicans will move on, on guns in the wake of that, of that shooting. And he's a Republican. And so, um, it's an interesting wrinkle that, you know, people want to tackle this gun violence and get more guns off the street, but sometimes state law doesn't allow them to do that.
1: Yeah. The only I'd add, uh, and normally I wouldn't come from this perspective, But I think a lot of people cannot comprehend how someone can be arrested for looting a store, grabbing thousands of dollars worth of stuff, and be out the next day back on the street. I think people just don't get that. Somehow, there's got to be some middle ground between what we did in 1994, which did cut crime, but also really trashed a lot of people's rights. And what we're doing in at least some big cities now, which is being very permissive. I mean, if you look at San Francisco, it's a real problem. What's saving San Francisco is all the AI people are moving back in, but that doesn't take care of the homelessness, the drug use on the streets, all that. In fact, that's our next question. What about homelessness, immigration,
0: education? How's that going to play out in this campaign
1: or how are any of them going to play out?
0: Well, homelessness is a fascinating prism issue because if you're on the right, you see it as an extension of crime. And if you're on the left, you see it more of a social justice issue. I conducted an interesting focus group in my neighborhood. We got robbed twice in the same day. Ransacked. Got my nine-year-old terrified, and we walked in on the robbers. The guy who did it got two nights in jail. Total. gun. I'm sure he's taking courses now. In my liberal, Biden-loving, Bernie-loving neighborhood, they're all now buying guns and ammo because they've just freaked out totally based on one anecdotal thing. Nobody's going to the library to look up the stats. So that, that's why this issue has a lot of power. And on the cultural right, it's tied into homelessness, because what people will say, and I see polling on this, is we're spending billions and billions. We keep spending money, and the problem gets worse. And I don't think at least the city mayors, I don't think Karen Bass has found a message
3: to kind of fix that, and she needs one, that perception. I think that my perception is very, very valid, because... I think most people would argue in New York from the outside that since Giuliani and Bloomberg, New York has had two weak mayors or ineffective mayors. Interestingly, and crime has gone up skyrocketing. Crime is now lower than, is still in New York City lower than what it was when Giuliani was mayor. Right. Lower than when Bloomberg was mayor. So, but, but Mike is right. It's all about the perception and there is a perception particularly amongst people who don't live in uh, many cities, about how bad the crime is.
2: Yeah, and it is it is a lot of, um, I don't know what the technical term is, but I think of it as like quality of life crime, right? Like you see it with your eyes, you see the bashed in window, and it makes it feel as if it is bigger than than it may be. But I agree, the numbers are the numbers. And in a lot of places, a lot of urban areas, it's actually, maybe it is spiked up post-pandemic, but certainly lower than the 90s or, or even early 2000s. But I think that in the context of the national campaign that's about to happen here over the next 18 months or 15 months, it's going to be the danger for people like me for, uh, you know, for Democrats is I think that the right, the, the media ecosystem in particular of the right is very, very good at weaponizing homelessness and immigration, both as issues to both motivate the base. And I think immigration in particular is one of those issues that can be used to to demonize the other and in some way scare the middle so i think it will be i do not think i still think what i said before is true this is going to be an election that is essentially decided on and fought on the economy but there are these issues like homelessness like uh crime that can be used in a sort of more surgical way to motivate bases and uh uh, and, and sometimes persuade, you know, targeted communities that they are under attack in some way. And that's scary. Um, but, um, you know, Democrats have similar issues on the other side that can be used for similar purposes. So may end up being a wash in the end. And the economy, the economy, the economy, that's going to be how people feel about things is going to be the thing that drives the majority of our political conversation. I think unless Putin uses a nuke or something and then it you know,
1: fits her off. We have a lot of other good questions here. We're running out of time. So I'm going to end with a piece of one of them. And just to ask Arnon, I think you received death threats after Fox News at your direction called Arizona for Joe Biden. At the team's direction.
3: What was it like? There were a few a few threats. Um, uh, the way I tell it is it was in the midst of COVID and one of our daughters, both adult daughters, was living with us because she'd moved back from San Francisco to because of COVID. And she was busy taught. We live in a co-op. She was busy calling the, the super and making sure the doormen do not let people in if they a- are asking for on in Michigan. The older daughter who was not living with us was always thinking a step or two ahead. And she thought we need to get a hold of the clips because we'll need them for the Shiva or the memorial service. It was fine. I want to first of all tell our
1: audience, we look forward to a great semester with our fellows and to a great semester and a great year. Of programming with The Bully Pulpit. Uh, so we'll see you the next time. I want to thank the audience for being here. I want to thank all of you who are guests for being here tonight. So thanks and have a good weekend.
0: Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter At USC P.O.L. Future, that's U.S.C. P.O.L. Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs.
5: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.